Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We will be reading out of 1 Timothy 4 through 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for goodness. For, wh for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is value, value in deserving of full acceptance. For this is the end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Isaac. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to so good to see you. So good to have you here with us today. Good to hear you singing uh, today, and and so glad that you're able to join us this morning. So, turning your Bibles if you're not already there to First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege uh, and honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you today. As we come to this text this morning, if you've been with us throughout the uh, earlier portion of our series in 1 Timothy, um, one of the things that we've talked about is the idea that these false teachers had come into the church, they had promoted legalistic ideas, they had become obsessed with what's called endless genealogies, the idea that there was secret importance to be found in Scripture that was not immediately apparent and could only be ascertained through living this ascetic lifestyle, this lifestyle where you were intentionally depriving yourself of good things that God had intended for you in the pursuit of this secret knowledge. And so one of the things that we have talked about at length, not only in this series, but throughout our time as a history of Disciples Church, is that Christianity is not primarily about the do's and the don'ts. It's not primarily about laws or standards. And yet at the same time, as we come to a text like this one in 1 Timothy chapter 4, what we find is a list of do's and don'ts. But the difference, of course, between what Paul is recommending in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and what the false teachers were promoting, uh, as referenced earlier in the chapter, is that Paul does not present these ideas as legalistic standards by which you attain God's favor. Rather, what he gives us in this text is instruction explicitly for pastors, particularly Timothy, but also truths that are applicable to all those who would claim the name of Jesus Christ principles that lead us into faithful following of Jesus Christ. And as we come to these verses, Paul is expressing this particular responsibility of Timothy, and by extension, the preacher of God's Word, as it pertains to addressing the errant doctrine of false teachers. You'll remember last week in particular, we addressed that the false teachers in Ephesus were telling the people not to eat certain foods, potentially not to partake in certain drinks as well, and, and recommending to them that they abstain from marriage and ultimately sexual activity as a means of pursuing holiness. This was instruction that was well outside of the established scripture. It was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is not confirmed by God's word. And yet these individuals took it upon themselves to create around true Christianity, a religious structure and system, a lattice, as it were, by which people could climb their way to God. And Paul responds to the claims of those teachers by calling them insincere 
liars who, having claimed the theology of demons, now have seared consciences. And if you're thinking to yourself that those are pretty harsh words, you'd be right. I mean, Paul does not hold back on his criticism of these false teachers, but his correction for them was necessary because these teachers were doing what was in the mind of Paul unthinkable. They were trying to add to the radical simplicity of the gospel. See, the gospel in a nutshell is the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect and holy life for you because you could not do it on your own. That he died a cruel and torturous death that had been reserved for you because he loved you so much and wanted to make you his own. And that upon that death, he then raised from the dead to give you new life and new desires and new affections. You see, the gospel begins and ends with Jesus. It is God who starts the work in us. It is God who carries that work through to completion in our lives. It is God ultimately who completes that work in us and draws us to glory. It is God from beginning to end that carries through the work of the gospel. And when we are tempted to add anything, anything, to the finished work of Jesus. We are being drawn away, according to Paul, by the doctrine of demons. It's as if demons have their own seminary and their own theology. They've got their own little system of belief. And when you believe that anything outside of or in addition to Jesus provides your salvation, you are buying into demonic theology. Those are strong words of correction. And the question pops to our mind, well, how actually is that demonic? How is that demon-influenced theology? And I think in order to see that, we need to remember the exchange between the serpent and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We find that exchange in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'll read it for you aloud. You're welcome to read along if you like, but here's what it says. Now the serpent, that is Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When we think about what sin is and when we think about the harshness of God's judgment in addressing sin, namely hell, there is a part of us naturally in our humanity that bristles at the notion that God's wrath could be so severe for things that in our human eyes seem so minimal. But the proper understanding of what sin is, is that at its very root, it is a desire to place yourself in the position of God. It is cosmic treason. 
It is a declaration that the one true God of the universe is not in fact God, and that that is a role and position that you deserve for yourself, that you become the arbiter of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is acceptable and objectionable. And sometimes we do that in a very practical way, particularly for those who don't know Jesus. This is what they do. And they'll say something like, listen, I know that God tells me not to do that, but I think it'll make me happy. And so we determine that we know better than our own Creator what is good for our lives. We kick God out of the throne of heaven and we take His seat for ourselves. And as good religious Christians... Our tendency is to condemn that attitude and of course, go, of course, I would never, of course, I would never embrace that, nor would I be taken in by such a silly theology. I'm too smart in my faith to be drawn in by that, or so we think. But remember, Satan is crafty. And so he comes to us and he says, did Jesus really mean it when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? Doesn't it seem more likely that God wants you to show your sincerity and your devotion by doing good things and abstaining from pleasure and really proving your seriousness? Does the Bible really mean it, says Satan, when it says a man is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be helpful just to cover your bases in case? Isn't there some small part of this that depends on you. And so we fall for the trap of the Ephesian false teachers. And we say, yes, Jesus, plus. Forgetting in the words of John Owen that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And if you want evidence for that from Scripture, if you want evidence for the fact that your good works do nothing to gain your status before God, all you have to do is look at the example of the thief on the cross. D.L. Moody said it this way, the thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work, and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. Christ threw him a passport and took him to paradise. See, to indulge in Jesus plus theology is to fall into the trap of the evil one. And so Paul takes the lesson that he'd laid out in verses 1 through 5, and now he tells Timothy, your responsibility, Timothy, this young preacher, the young protege in Ephesus, is to declare before the people the simple, radical gospel, unadulterated, unabridged, in all of its beauty and all of its simplicity, the most radical news that a lost and dying people could ever hope to hear. Your responsibility, Timothy, says Peter, is to remind God's people of what they so easily forget. And so Paul continues in verse 6 by saying this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
Now, Paul doesn't specify here for us what these things are, right? He kind of makes this blanket statement, and so there's a little bit of interpretation that has to be done as to what exactly it is that Paul is referencing. But considering what he mentions at the end of verse 6, I think it's safe to assume that Paul is including not only the correction that he leveled, uh, levied rather in verses 1 through 5, but really all of the right doctrine that Timothy had learned to this point in his life. And Paul specifically references at the end of verse 6, the good doctrine that you have followed, or may be translated in your Bible, in which you've been raised, or in which you've been brought up, that this was a doctrine that was known to the heart of Timothy. These were beliefs that were deeply held, that he had been exposed to for a long time. And Timothy's story is interesting, and that his primary biblical training occurs first, not from Paul, but rather as a young man under the tutelage of his mother and his grandmother. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes and says this, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. These were godly women who had trained Timothy in the knowledge of the gospel. And in that, by the way, there is an encouragement for parents, specifically for mothers, of the tremendous role that you have in the spiritual development of your children. That the proverb is true when it says that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not walk away from it. Now, that is a proverb. proverb. It is a general truism. It doesn't mean that it always happens. And we can all point to evidence and to individuals who we've seen wander and drift away from faith. But the general reality, according to the book of Proverbs, is that a child trained up in the way of the Lord does not depart. But we as parents struggle at times to believe that. We struggle when we fail our children. We struggle when we let them down. We struggle when we get angry and when we say things that we ought not say. But for that Christian parent, what Paul is suggesting in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is that you can take heart when there are moments of difficulty and struggle and heartache and challenge with your children. Because the God who saved you and redeem, can redeem even your lesser moments in the lives of your children. In other words, your children do not need a perfect parent. They need a humble parent who is dependent on a perfect God. And that is certainly the lesson that Timothy clung to as he grew into manhood. And that godly training was then continued, passed on from his mother and his grandmother to the hands of Paul. And now Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to take the truth that you've learned and I want you to put it before the brothers. In other words, don't let them be swept away with the lies of the false teachers. Don't let them be drawn away by the promises of some sort of spirituality that can only be found in a man-made religiosity, but rather combat lies with the truth. And the same is true for us today, though the topics and the conversations certainly have changed. So broadly, outside of this room, when we think about culture and society, when culture around us tries to redefine our God-given sexuality, or the nature of marriage, or the sanctity of human life, 
we have a responsibility not to acquiesce in order to be on the right side of history, whatever that means. But rather, in the words of one commentator, to stand athwart history, yelling, stop. And likewise, when churches internally decide to soft-sell God's truth in order to pacify critics and tickle the ears of listeners for the sake of status or attendees or finances, the Christian broadly and the Christian minister in particular has a responsibility to put truth before the brothers. Why? Because more is at stake here than political opinion. More is at stake than the esteem of man. More is at stake than perceived cultural relevance. And when biblical truth is undermined, the souls of people are put at stake. See, it's far more important to be able to stand before God with clean consciences and honest hearts and be temporarily criticized by people than it is to temporarily placate people at the cost of their eternity. And by doing this, says Paul, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Paul continues, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, unfortunately for us, Paul doesn't actually explain the particulars of what those irreverent, silly myths were, but certainly, at the very least, what he means is that Christians ought to be discerning that that measured reality of God's truth is to inform our thinking and to and to fire up our consciences so that when we view things in the world or in the church, we have a properly aligned biblical perspective on how it is to we are either to receive or reject those things. In other words, this is a dedication to truth that not only applies when we speak publicly within the context of the gathered church, but also the pursuits, the personal beliefs in which we choose to partake. And the big idea behind Paul's sentence in verse 7 is that the Christian ought to be careful not to be bogged down in speculation. Think back to the endless genealogies, trying to parse hidden spiritual truths from things that were not intended to elicit some deep hidden spiritual truth. And all the while doing that while missing the obvious truth of Scripture. So understand what that means then for us, whether it's books that promise some sort of spiritual blessing upon the recitation of a particular prayer, or whether it's particular preachers that promise prosperity based on your financial donation to their organization, or whether it's so-called discernment bloggers or Christian radio hosts that spend entirely too much time and effort on the nuances of obscure biblical texts while assuming rather than explaining the gospel, it is incumbent upon the Christian to be discerning, wise, appropriate, as we determine according to Scripture what is true and what is false, what is important, vital, and what is of secondary importance at best. See, Paul is saying we don't want to be drawn away and caught up in meaningless controversies or unserious, silly things that become important to us. And every era has its own myths. I mean, for the Christians in Ephesus, they were dealing with myths in a very literal sense. They were living in a culture that still observed the old gods, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. 
They were observing and making sacrifices and worshiping these gods, but even more than that, according to one commentator, what controlled the lives of people was not the formal worship of those gods, but the folk religion that had slipped into their lives. Do this and you'll be blessed. Observe that and you'll have good fortune. And the truth is, for all of our right doctrine, folk religion has become just as important to the everyday life of many Christians as it was to the pagans of this era. So here's what I mean. We take principles of karma and we apply them to God. If I do this, God owes me that. If I abstain from this behavior, God will have to bless me. If I participate in this particular offering, God is obligated to reward me. Or we take principles of investment and apply them to God. If I give this much to God, certainly he will give me this much back. As if he's a celestial hedge fund. Or we take human traits and we apply them to God. God is disappointed in me as a Christian. He's angry at me as a Christian. He's judging me as a Christian. He's distant as a Christian. When God is promising that he's never far off for those who believe. Where God promises that judgment has already been meted out on his son, Jesus Christ. And that while he disciplines us for our own growth and development in the Lord, judgment has already been handled. So here's my point. Let's not let our operating principle be some sort of folk religion informed by the irreverent, silly myths of our age. But let's let Scripture speak for itself and observe what it says. So he continues then at the end of verse 7, rather, instead of doing that, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So Paul says, here's the alternative for you. Rather than participating in irreverent, silly myths, what you ought to do is train yourself for godliness. And that word train that he gives us is the Greek word gymnasi. It literally means strenuous exercise. He's saying apply yourself to the reality of what it is to be a believer. Discipline yourself in the understanding of God's word. Know who he is. And here's why that's important to us. So I came up, uh, came of age in the 90s. I grew up in the Michael Jordan era of basketball, arguably the greatest era in which to grow up, depending on what era you come from and who your favorite basketball star is. But I'm going to argue it was the best era in which you could possibly grow up being a fan of the NBA. And so I remember watching uh, the finals with Jordan and seeing the amazing performance he put on. And along with Jordan's success and the success of other superstars of that era, came along a whole industry of money-making opportunity for companies like Nike and Adidas and Reebok. And so there was an assumption, or a presumption at least, on the part of basketball fans that if I were to purchase those particular shoes, perhaps my game would improve. And so at the very top of the heap, you had the Air Jordans, you had that Nike logo, and then you had that famous, iconic Air Jordan silhouette on the back of the shoe, and people were dropping hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these shoes, thinking they were going to try to improve their game. And then Reebok, in an effort not to be outdone, released the Reebok pump. Do you remember that one? It had the little orange ball on the tongue of the shoe, and you could puff it up, and the whole idea was that it'll give you extra... I don't know, jumping ability? I'm not really sure what the principle was, but the idea was that somehow 
it was going to improve your game. But as I had friends who purchased those shoes, something became apparent. That no matter how much money they spent on their shoes or which athletes endorsed the particular shoe that they were wearing, none of them actually improved their game in the slightest. Why? Because while they owned Michael Jordan's shoes, they had neglected to apply his work ethic. And Paul, in suggesting that the growth, that growth in Christian, Christian maturity is not found in your outward appearance, but rather through intentional spiritual training. In other words, it is easy to look like an athlete, and it's another thing to be one. So Paul says, it's almost like physical exercise, and he says there's value in physical exercise. There's actually a benefit for it. It strengthens the body, it sharpens the mind, it contributes to healthy living. But Paul says, while physical exercise benefits the body, spiritual exercise has both immediate and eternal benefits for you. So how do you avoid irreverent, silly myths? We take time to hear from God through His Word. We talk to God in prayer. We spend time with God in silence and in solitude. And we grow with others as we spend time and have conversations with them. Now remember, he's not suggesting the sort of legalistic self-denial that the false teachers were promoting, because what drives you toward actual godliness is not a desire to earn what you've already been given, but that you would begin to live with a new set of ideals and aims. That your life would begin to be lived with eternity in mind, conscious of what is to come that your view of God would be informed and transformed by the Word of God. And Paul is saying the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And I think his statement there applies to what he just said in verse 8. Almost that it's a mantra. This is true and right. This is a true-ism. This is something you can hang your hat on, that physical training is beneficial but temporal. And spiritual training is beneficial but eternal. And it continues, verse 10, for to this end we toil and we strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now right off the bat, let's get the confusing bit out of the way because that very last line is one that has a tendency to flummox people as they read it. What is it exactly that Paul is saying when he says that the living God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? Is he suggesting that all people, regardless of their belief, will be saved by this Savior? And some universalists, people who who don't, or rather who believe that that everyone, regardless of faith or expression or behavior or whatever else, uh, will ultimately attain heaven in the presence of God, uh, and that there is no such thing as, uh, as the wrath of God, they would make that claim based upon this verse. But here's the problem with that. We know that that sort of understanding of this verse contradicts what we find in a whole bunch of other places throughout the New Testament. So what we have to do whenever we come to unclear texts is we have to compare it to the texts that we know are clear. 
And so we think, for instance, of texts like John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We think of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter in his sermon says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if it doesn't mean that all are saved regardless of belief, what in the world does that portion of this verse actually mean? Well, according to Greek scholar William Mounts in his commentary on this text, he said that the phrase here can be properly understood to say, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all kinds of people, namely those who believe. All kinds of people namely those who believe. In other words, we have to remember the context into which Paul is speaking. Paul is a Jewish minister, born a Jew, had converted to Christianity. He's now ministering in a Gentile context, and he's reminding the reader here that God's salvation includes not only Jews, but also Gentiles. In other words, God is going to save all kinds of people, and namely, he's going to call those, he's going to save those who believe. And Paul says, here's ultimately why, brother and sister, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. That God is not the culmination of a series of religious beliefs. He's not the expression of a group consciousness. He's not the meanderings of a spiritual mind. He is a living being who interacts with and cares for his creation. The reason we toil is not found in ourselves. Our hope is not in our accomplishments or even on our spiritual discipline, though as we just learned, there's tremendous value in that. But rather, our hope is set on the living God. In other words, the reason that we're able to put truth before the brothers regardless of how it's received or what people think of us, the reason we're, going to be draw- we're not going to be drawn into irreverent, silly myths, so the reason we're going to train ourselves for godliness is because of the hope that we have in the living God. And think how much encouragement that must have been for young Timothy. Here he is, a relatively young man, potentially overwhelmed with the responsibilities of, of shepherding and pastoring this church. Perhaps he felt the internal pressure or the outward expectation that he was going to be Paul 2.0. Imagine stepping into a church scenario where you become the new pastor and the guy that you followed wrote a third of the New Testament. The person you followed who expressed miraculous ability through the power of God, whose handkerchief left behind was able to heal people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you get to replace him. Intimidating? Perhaps he was intimidated by ministering to congregants who were older than him. Perhaps he was intimidated by having to confront these false teachers 
who possibly had more charisma and more money than him. And his tendency might have been the same tendency that you and I feel when we find ourselves in difficult positions in life, where we feel the pressure to perform and to bear the load on our own. But the confidence of what Paul is communicating to Timothy in this text is that the load to bear was not Timothy's. His responsibility, as Paul stated earlier in this text, was to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. It wasn't to have all the answers, and it wasn't to be perfect, and it wasn't to be smarter. It wasn't to have a more winning personality or a more accomplished portfolio or a track record of success. His responsibility was to faithfully declare the gospel that had been revealed to him, the simple gospel communicated to him by his mother and his grandmother. And imagine how much burden was released from his shoulders when he realized that that was all God was asking him to do. Brother and sister, the same reminder belongs to us. That our hope is not in our ability to perform. It's not in our ability to make winning arguments or to claim victory in every debate. Our confidence is in the fact that we have a living God that he is the savior of those who believe and that his care for his people is constant and deep. Would we take heart when we struggle in our families that we have a God who loves our children, brothers, sisters, grandchildren, parents, even more than we do? Would we take heart when our relationships with brothers and sisters in the context of the church begin to be strained by disagreement or misunderstanding, that there is a God who has an infinite love for you and for them? Would we be reminded when we struggle to perform and when we fail that we have a God who loved us to such a great extent that his own son came to do everything that we could not do for ourselves? And in our toiling and our straining, would we rest in that hope? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words of care and confidence that you offer. God, would the words of your servant Paul challenge our hearts and our minds? Would they tear down the temples that we've built to our own success? Would it eliminate our temptation to perform? Would it strengthen our resolve to devote ourselves to godliness? Would it embolden us to proclaim your truth regardless of what the consequence? And God, would we be able to enter into all of that because we have a hope that you are the living God that you are not dead and you are not a myth. You are not a religious system. You are not a God who is disconnected or far away. 
but that you intimately and deeply care for your creation. And God, that you are the Savior of those who believe. So God, do in us today what we can't do ourselves. Stir up in us what we are unable to muster and embolden us to live a life that would be pleasing and glorifying to you as faithful servants, resting in your perfect love. And it's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.